Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. This is your host, Ken Wise, and I want to thank you for tuning in today for a little Texas history. This podcast is being released on Monday, April 17th. 2017, and that can mean only one thing for Texas history lovers, and that's that the anniversary of the Battle of San Jacinto is coming up. Friday will be April 21st, and it will be the 181st anniversary of the Battle of San Jacinto. So we are right in that sacred time as Sam Houston and the Texian Army approached Harrisburg, too late to save the city from Santa Ana. Santa Ana had proceeded south to New Washington and was going to turn back to San Jacinto. So we can't have an episode released this week without uh, talking about San Jacinto. So today we're going to talk about the spoils of San Jacinto. But before we get there, I want to thank Kevin Barron, the host of the podcast Beyond the Riverwalk, for having me on again. I taped an interview with him on a couple of days ago about the Reimagine the Alamo Master Plan. That's reimaginethealamo.org. And they have a new master plan for redesigning uh, the area around the Alamo, making it more tourist-friendly, making it a better attraction, uh, and reinterpreting a lot of the history to give you a more accurate experience at the Alamo. And I was really excited to be able to talk about that because it's a it's an exciting plan. It's not you know 100% complete yet, um, but it is really going to make that area. Uh, new and, uh, as their name says, reimagined, and I think it's sorely needed. It's going to be a real benefit to the city, and uh, I think it's going to be a benefit to the history community, too. Well, you can talk about the Battle of San Jacinto many different ways, um, but one of the things that we have yet to talk about on this podcast uh, is we, we will review the basics of the battle, but what happened right after the battle And I've called this episode The Spoils of San Jacinto because what I want to tell you about are a couple of things uh, that happened right after the battle and how the Texian army reacted when uh, the Mexican army had been defeated. So let's get into it. We're going to go back to this week, 181 years ago, and get wise about Texas. As we start to talk about the Battle of San Jacinto, we need to put it in context, and I cannot think of a better way to do that. And I've spoken, uh, given speeches on the battle, you know, dozens of times. And I think that the best thing to do is read to you the inscription that's on the San San Jacinto Monument, because it really captures it. Here's the inscription, quote, Measured by its results, San Jacinto was one of the decisive battles of the world. The freedom of Texas from Mexico, won here, led to annexation and to the Mexican-American War, resulting in the acquisition by the United States of the states of Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, California, Utah, and parts of Colorado, Wyoming, Kansas, and Oklahoma. Almost one-third of the present area of the American nation, nearly a million square miles of territory, changed sovereignty. Close quote. That's pretty significant. Um, after the Mexican-American War, the uh, the manifest destiny that so many favored in the United States was finally realized, all in an 18-minute battle just outside of Houston, Texas. Uh, another thing that I want to mention on this podcast is something that uh, my friend J.P. Bryan, a great Texas historian, brought up last weekend at a history symposium 
at the San Jacinto Monument, he made the point that Santa Ana had about 6,000 combatants and about 4,000 camp followers when he entered Texas to squash the Texas Revolution. Andrew Jackson had ordered General Edmund Gaines with 8,000 troops in Fort Jessup, Louisiana, to assist Sam Houston and the Texians if Santa Ana had entered uh, in the area between the Natchez River and the Sabine, what was referred to as the neutral ground. And so you had two superpowers, uh, one with 8,000, one with about 10,000 people uh, facing each other. Squeezed between them was the Texian army, which, um, as JP said at the symposium, depending on the day of the week, might have been 1,000, might have been 1,500, might have been 2,000. But there was a total of about 18,000 combatants that were set to square off in whatever was to be the decisive battle of the revolution. And on American soil, that's the largest total number uh, to that time, except for the American Revolution. So this was going to be a very significant showdown wherever it occurred. Well, on uh, let's go over the battle for a minute. Sam Houston, uh, as I mentioned earlier, had been headed to Harrisburg, to try to intercept Santa Ana. Santa Ana had been through Harrisburg, burned the town, had headed down to New Washington, which is now Morgan's Point, discovered that Sam Houston was a lot closer than he thought, so he turned around and headed for the town of Lynchburg, which is uh, right across from the San Jacinto Battleground, or was right across from the San Jacinto Battleground, across the San Jacinto River. And the Lynchburg Ferry, founded in the 1820s, still runs today. Um... Sam Houston crosses Buffalo Bayou, camps in a grove of oaks, uh, was headed to Lynchburg but turned around when he his spies told him that Santa Ana was coming, and that chose the plains of San Jacinto as the battleground. The battleground belonged to a lady named Peggy McCormick. It was the McCormick Ranch. So we had the morning of, of course, now you'll recall that the men were so very eager to fight Santa Ana. And uh, on April the 20th, Sidney Sherman, commanding the cavalry, wanted to engage with the Mexicans. Sam Houston would not allow him to do that, but what he said he could do was go out and reconnoiter the enemy. Well, that's all he needed to hear. So they went out there and immediately engaged with some of the Mexican troops. It did not go well. Uh, they were quickly uh, surrounded. And they were imperiled. During that skirmish, one of the infantry units ran out to help them, despite Sam Houston ordering him not to. Uh, so these men were itching for a fight. Also during that skirmish, Marabou B. Lamar uh, rescued a wounded soldier who was afoot uh, with a daring feat of chivalry that even drew cheers from the Mexican side. So the battle almost started on the afternoon of April the 20th. They made it to the morning of the 21st. Sam Houston had held a council of war, and despite uh, the fervor for battle, the men, the leaders, decided to wait and see if the Mexicans were going to attack. They soon realized the Mexicans were not going to attack. Santa Ana and his army were relaxed. They were watering horses, riding them one by one bareback to the river to water the horses, and nobody was doing anything very quickly. So Sam Houston decided that was the time to attack. And, of course, we know that the Texians assembled in a line, a single line. They had the twin sisters, 
the two cannon from the people of Cincinnati, Ohio, and they proceeded to march up the hill. Now, the San Jacinto Monument sits about where the top of that hill was. Uh, the Mexicans did not see them. By all accounts, the Mexicans did not lay eyes on the Texans until they were within a couple of hundred yards. By then, it was too late. The Texans charged. Uh, the first engagement was on the left, um, the left of the Texan lines. And uh, the Texans overran them, and the battle was over in about 18 minutes. Santa Ana makes his escape. Um, the Mexican soldiers try to run back into the bayous in the marsh around the battleground. They can't make it, and the Texans proceeded to cut them down in a fit of vengeance for the Alamo and Goliad. So after 18 minutes and probably a, another hour or two of, uh, of that vengeance, uh, things calmed down. Uh, surrender of several hundred Mexican troops was accepted, and the battle was done. Well, then when you have the battle over at that point, uh, the Mexican camp belonged to the Texans. So what did they discover? Well, they found two large square piles of baggage um, with sp space in the middle. And uh, Edward Burleson, who had commanded uh, the, the regiment in the middle during the charge, ordered George Bernard Erath and a man named Simmons to guard the baggage through the night of the 21st. Now, he ordered them that they could consume what were called at the time eatables, uh, but they were not to let anything else disappear from that camp. Well, the baggage they had been assigned to guard actually belonged to Santa Ana himself. And so they found elaborate silver camp furniture. Erath describes it as, uh, quote, such as a European prince might take with him into the field, close quote. They also found something very interesting, two very large pyramids of champagne, so they started to uh, sample the champagne and pass it out to the Texians that were now walking by this baggage on their way back to the Texian camp after exacting their vengeance. And uh, their theory, of course, was that the champagne constituted an eatable, just like any other food or drink item. A Texian officer came by uh, looking for something else I'll describe in a minute. Uh, was given some champagne, word got around the officer corps, and Erath writes that he had lots of officers keeping him company through the night, uh, or at least presumably until the champagne ran out. Well, what that Texian officer was looking for was a chest belonging to Santa Ana. Juan Seguin had found out that somewhere in the camp, Santa Ana had a bunch of silver. So they did indeed find that chest, and in it, was eleven or $12,000 worth of silver. Now, we don't know for sure exactly how much was there, but they did find the chest of the money. And several of the soldiers, now presumably most of these Mexican soldiers were conscripts. They didn't have a lot of money, but some of them would have had some silver. And as you read firsthand accounts from the veterans, um, you discover that there was money discovered on some of these bodies. So Sam Houston had ordered all that money to be turned in. Now, and I'm sure much of it was. I'm equally sure all of it was not. Well, they found the, the silver in the chest, and um, they proceeded to count it. There's a, an account from one soldier named John Forbes alleging that the more the money was counted, the stickier the money became, 
in the sense that it stuck to the fingers of those that were counting it. Uh, he he says he alleged to General Houston there was only about seven thousand dollars left while they were done when they were done counting. Uh, there are other firsthand accounts that say no, it was it was done correctly, etc. Um, but what Sam Houston decided to do was distribute the money to the soldiers. So each soldier got about eleven dollars. We don't know exactly uh, who got what. They didn't all get the same. Uh, some recalled that the officers got more than enlisted. Uh, in almost all accounts, though, the soldiers that were continuing at this time to chase the fleeing Mexican troops uh, got less, uh, and in some cases none, of this money because they weren't in camp. So it certainly paid to uh, be, literally paid to be present in camp. Um, the account of John Forbes and uh, some disputes about uh, who was counting money and how well they were counting it eventually led to litigation with another Texian soldier, a doctor named Nicholas Labadee, who got at each other's throats over the money. He had accused Forbes of stealing some of the money. Uh, Forbes had accused Labadee of going and pulling the teeth of the dead Mexican soldiers for his dental practice. Um, anyway, that litigation was resolved. It went into the 1850s in Nacogdoches, uh, finally resolved. So you can see that this was um, a battle for fortune as well as freedom, at least in the mind of many of the soldiers who had sacrificed so much and marched all over Texas. Another great item among the spoils of San Jacinto was the saddle, and was Santa Ana's saddle and bridle. Now, Santa Ana fled the field, but he didn't do so on his horse with his tack. He did so on the nearest horse and as quickly as he could. So his saddle and bridle and stirrups and rigging were all left behind. The saddle's magnificent leather with a lot of gold uh, accessories on it, and I will put a picture of it on the website. Uh, the saddle, there's a couple of different versions of, of what happened to the saddle. Uh, some say the men just presented it to Sam Houston. Some say the men got together and bought it at the auction I'm going to tell you about in a second and presented it to Sam Houston. And either way... Sam Houston ended up with the saddle, as probably well he should have, being the commander. Um, that saddle is now, uh, it was in the collection of Andrew Jackson Houston, and he presented them to Professor J.L. Clark at what was then called the Sam Houston Normal Institute, now the Sam Houston State University, and Professor Clark had donated that collection to the university and really uh, began sort of the Sam Houston Memorial Museum. And so you can travel to Huntsville the Sam Houston Memorial Museum, and see Santa Ana's gorgeous saddle. Well, that was not all that the Texans seized, as you might imagine. They, uh, Sam Houston's official battle report states that the Texans captured 600 muskets, 300 sabers, 200 pistols, and several hundred horses and mules. Uh, and then, of course, there was also the Mexican cannon, which uh, many of the men called the Golden Standard. And then they would have had all the camp equipment and all of the accessories. Well, by April 26th, Houston had moved the army five or six miles up the bayou to a ranch belonging to a guy named George Patrick. Um, again, you've, if you're familiar with the San Jacinto story, you remember that Santa Ana was captured, brought before Sam Houston. Peggy McCormick, who owned the ranch, uh, demanded that somebody bury the bodies. Santa Ana had no interest in burying the dead of his own army. Uh, the Texians had no interest in burying the dead bodies. Uh, so, uh, but of course, in April in Texas, um, 
the stench would have been almost unbearable. So Sam Houston just packed the army up and moved five or six miles up the bayou, leaving the bodies for Miss McCormick to deal with as best she could, which she later was forced to. Um, well, we have the money distributed. So once we get into this new camp, the leaders of the Texian army decided they were going to have an auction. And this probably is the first fundraising effort of the brand new free republic. And they had an auction of all the stuff that they had captured from the Mexican army. It's reported that Sidney Sherman bought $341 of it. Uh, many. It's also reported that many of the men were gambling with their money and with the things that they had purchased. Uh, one officer says he spent all of his $11 on a blanket, which I don't know. He must have been really cold because $11 for a blanket uh, at that auction sounds like a bit of a ripoff, but he, he got what he bargained for. They auctioned off all the horses. They auctioned off all the mules. Um, one auction item bears some special mention. Uh, the story goes that Adjutant General John Wharton bought some items and presented them to Sam Houston as gifts. And one of the items he bought was Santa Ana's chamber pot, which was, of course, made of silver. Santa Ana fancying himself the Napoleon of the West. And uh, so that must have been a pretty good joke that Wharton played on Sam Houston presenting Santa Ana's toilet uh, to the general. By the way, that that uh, item was also in the collection of Andrew Jackson Houston, who had a, a second handle crafted and added uh, to the chamber pot and referred to it to everyone from then on as a soup bowl uh, because it was just a little bit too indelicate. Indelicate, but um, anyway, there was a. We talked about. I mentioned the horses and the mules, and one of the, there's a firsthand account from a Mexican officer named Pedro Delgado, and he describes uh, he describes this auction. He witnessed the auction. He especially mentions the fact that he witnessed his own boots sold at the auction while he had nothing but rawhide to cover his feet. Uh, he mentions that the all of the overcoats from the officers, which would have been very nice in the Mexican army, certainly compared to what the enlisted soldiers had, that they were all sold. And so now these officers were having to wear the same kind of coats as their enlisted. Uh, but one of the funny things he mentioned was that the uh, Texians were taking pieces of the Mexican uniforms, the decorative gold cords and the pieces off the hats, the badges, the feathers, and they were decorating their horses and, and the mules. So that must have been quite the sight. Uh, but the other thing that he mentions that was funny was that after they auctioned off all these horses and mules, the Texians wanted to ride the mules because that's what they did. The Mexicans, though, didn't. The Mexicans used them only as pack animals. So these Texians were saddling these wild mules, and you can imagine what happened next. This is the way Delgado describes it. He says, after the Texians got in the saddle, quote, they let go, and you should have seen the brute scampering over God's own green fields and scattering about its trappings and ornaments. Lo, our poor Yankee flies on high with saddle and drops heavily on the ground, from which he could not rise, his ribs being somewhat damaged. That was not the worst, for the mule once in the woods could not be caught again. How strange these men are. Many of them act and feel like the wild Comanche. Close quote. So I thought that was a pretty interesting observation of the Texian army after the Battle of San Jacinto. Well, there was one other near disaster 
uh, while we were collecting the spoils of San Jacinto. And uh, of course, it's one of those things that was critically dangerous at the time, but now to those of us with the Texian spirit is uh, fairly amusing. Uh, Before they moved camp, so right after the battle, but before they moved to the Patrick Ranch, the Texians had piled up an incredible collection of arms and ammunition. That Delgado account I referred to earlier mentions 70 or 80 ordnance stores, which would have been gunpowder and cannon shells that they had made, etc., and a bunch of pistols and rifles. And Delgado uh, made special note that the Texians had a habit of handling all the gunpowder and the guns with their lit pipes in their mouths, which was greatly unnerving to all the Mexican prisoners who were who were roped off right by this store of guns and gunpowder. Now, remember back in 1836, these are black powder weapons. So you have the uh, exposed black gunpowder, and then you have these weapons that would have had this gunpowder uh, easily accessible to a spark or anything that might have flown, might have uh, fallen off these pipes. Well, one of the young Texian soldiers, a guy named John Farrell, was walking around this pile of guns, picking up the pistols and snapping them, meaning pulling the trigger. And the way you unloaded a gun back then, you didn't take the cartridge out. You just fired it uh, because that was the only way to unload it. So he was just snapping the pistols and for what reason, we don't know. But one of the Texians told him, quit messing around or he was going to hurt someone. Apparently, they had an argument with the kid saying, oh, these guns are all unloaded anyway. Well, guess what happened next? One of the pistols fired. Not only did it fire, it hit a uh, Texian officer, Robert Eden Handy. It uh, hit him in the chin. Bullet lodged in his his shoulder. Handy eventually recovered. But that was not the end of the story. The sparks from the pistol, when you fire these black powder, uh, especially flintlocks, the sparks go everywhere. The sparks from the pistol ignited gunpowder that was scattered on the ground. And one of the first-hand accounts of this incident talks about the, the ignited powder, quote, communicating with the cartridge boxes, close quote. So you can imagine a chain of gunpowder all over the ground uh, headed right for the boxes full of more gunpowder, as well as piles of muskets and pistols. We, and we now know that at least one of them was loaded. Delgado describes the resulting explosion as sounding like an infernal machine. Now, that's an interesting choice of words because, you know, there was no such thing as a repeating weapon back in those days. So multiple guns firing at one time would have been quite a scene. Um, The problems were not over. It also set the grass on fire. So everybody had to run away. And in fact, the Mexican prisoners no longer respected their bonds, and they took off as well. So we had prisoners, guards, soldiers, everybody running across the prairie, uh, except for poor Handy, who was uh, Colonel Handy, who was hit in the chin with a, with a pistol ball lodged in his soldiers, shoulder. Well, every order was eventually restored. Um, Houston, Sam Houston, had Farrell arrested and issued a very loud and public order to have him executed for his recklessness. So he let Farrell sleep on it, had Farrell brought to him about 30 minutes before he was supposed to be executed, and made a big ceremony of uh, pardoning the young man, despite almost burning half of southeast Texas down. Well, um, 
as the Texians gathered the spoils, they also had those hundreds of prisoners, and they had their A number one prisoner, Santa Ana. But remember that most, I'd say most probably, of the soldiers wanted Santa Ana immediately executed. And Sam Houston, in what is no doubt one of the most brilliant decisions in Texas history, knew that he needed to keep Santa Ana alive so that he could be negotiating with the president of Mexico when they negotiated the terms that they that later would be embodied in the treaties of Velasco. Well, Santa Ana was in a tent and treated very well by all accounts. In fact, given much of his camp equipment back, his fancy silver furniture, etc., and was made very, very comfortable uh, by General Houston, much to the anger of many of the Texian troops. Well, Santa Ana's in his tent, and uh, he's guarded by a guy named Tom Nail. And Tom Nail was most decidedly in the execute Santa Ana faction of the Texas Army. Well, when all those cartridges started going off and that gunpowder exploded and all those guns started firing, Santa Ana, and you can only imagine, he must have thought Philosola had arrived from the Brazos to his rescue because it would have sounded like a great battle. He pokes his head out of his tent flap. Well, Nail looks down, sees the head of El Presidente sticking out of the tent, seizes his opportunity and lunges at him with his bayonet, and Santa Ana was able to duck that blow. Uh, and for sure was wise enough not to poke his head out of that tent again. Uh, but one Texian guard, Tom Nail, almost changed the course of world history in connection with that powder explosion. Well, I want to talk about one last artifact. Now, this artifact did not come from the Battle of San Jacinto, but I cannot resist talking about it because it's out there. It relates to our friend Santa Ana, and that is his wooden leg. Now, in 1828, uh, Lorenzo de Zavala was a Mexican governor. He was governor of Yucatan. And there was a lot of unrest at the time in Mexico. Uh, Zavala led an army. Uh, he was removed from office by the president, whose name was Pedraza. He led an army to Mexico City to, to fight Pedraza. He was successful. He replaced him with a new president, uh, the guy who had lost the election, um, but during that fighting in Mexico City, uh, some soldiers, we don't know who they were fighting for, looted a French bakery that was owned by a Frenchman named Raymontel. Uh, Raymontel demanded that the Mexican government pay for his damage. Uh, Mexican government wouldn't do it. He asked his home country of France to help. That got the French king's attention. He said, not only do you owe Raymontel for his damage, Mexican government, you also owe France a bunch of money, and we're going to send some troops to enforce it and collect this debt. That led to a war between Mexico and France called the Pastry War. Well, uh, the French had blockaded Veracruz and uh, had captured the entire Mexican Navy, had occupied Veracruz with thousands of troops. So our old friend Santa Ana, who had been living in disgrace after San Jacinto, reemerges, uh, defeats the French, and becomes a hero again. But during that battle, he lost part of his leg, to a cannon shot. He buried that part of his leg with military honors at his hacienda. Um, after he beat the French, he used that victory to catapult himself back to the presidency, and Santa Ana will, would be elected president of Mexico no less than 11 times. And once he got the presidency back, he had the leg um, exhumed, driven to Mexico City in a very ornate carriage, and given a full state funeral 
in Mexico City. Now, um, if you're elected president 11 times, you're obviously going to be unelected a few times, too. Uh, later, after the state funeral, Santa Ana once again became unpopular, and the populace of Mexico City uh, dug the leg up. Can't imagine what it must look like at that time, but they drug it through the streets, yelling death to the cripples. So uh, politics in Mexico at this time was certainly a fickle enterprise. But uh, having lost his leg, he needed a new one. So Santa Ana wore a wooden leg after that pastry war. And um, during the Mexican War, which Santa Ana, of course, was in command during that time, he was sitting in his carriage eating a chicken lunch one day, and he had taken the leg off, and some troops from the 4th Illinois uh, surprised him, and he had to leave quickly, and he could take neither the chicken nor the leg. So the 4th Illinois captured Santa Ana's wooden leg. They took it uh, to what became the Illinois State Military Museum, where it remains, although there have been some efforts on the part of Texans to get Santa Ana's wooden leg and return it to Texas. We haven't been able to do that yet. Mexico, of course, does not want it. Uh, Santa Ana is not popular at all in Mexico. So it's not exactly a relic of San Jacinto, but it is a great piece of Texas-related history residing, at least for now, in Illinois. So those were some of the stories about the aftermath of the battle and the spoils of San Jacinto. But remember that the real spoils of San Jacinto were realized a little later. The battle freed Texas. Texas immediately went to work trying to enter the United States. Uh, Mexico invaded Texas twice uh, between the San Jacinto and the time that we were able to enter the Union. Uh, but after we entered the Union in 1846, we immediately went to war with Mexico in a resounding United States victory. Uh, the resulting treaties gave the United States one-third of its present territory and fulfilled the promise of manifest destiny. So when you visit the Grand Canyon, the Colorado Rockies, Las Vegas, maybe the California coast, or you think about the riches of the West, just remember that it all started with 18 minutes on the late afternoon of April 21st, 1836, on the plains of San Jacinto. Well, now we come to the part of the show I call Getting There, where I tell you how to go see some of the places mentioned in the episode. And obviously, we're going to talk about San Jacinto. This episode's being released on April 17th, this coming Saturday, which is April 22nd, the day after the anniversary of the battle, is the big San Jacinto Festival at the battleground. So you can go to sanjacinto-museum.org and find out all about that. It's going to start at 10 o'clock. I think the battle reenactment's at 3 o'clock. And uh, that's an event that occurs every year. I always take my kids down there. It's a lot of fun. It's a great opportunity to go through the museum, to, to be a, at the battleground around the time of the battle. The reenactors do a great job. And that's always just a ton of fun. And be sure to go in the museum there. If you want to see some other artifacts from San Jacinto, uh, the Bryan Museum in Galveston has uh, several things down there. They have Santa Ana's smoking cap. They have a rifle from San Jacinto. They have the sword that belonged to Joel Robinson, who actually captured Santa Ana. So that would have been the sword that he pointed at Santa Ana when he captured him the day after the battle. So uh, the Bryan Museum is always a great place to go see some real artifacts from Texas history. 
And on the actual anniversary of the battle, April 21st, which uh, is coming up at 11 o'clock, will be the annual ceremony at the monument where tribute will be paid to the soldiers of San Jacinto. The battle report will be reviewed. We'll have some speeches. The Texan Army will fire a salute. And that's always a wonderful, wonderful experience. And they hold that rain or shine. If it's uh, shine, it'll be outside on the steps of the monument. And if it's raining, we'll do it inside. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Wise About Texas. I hope on this uh, week, the anniversary of the Battle of San Jacinto, that you will take some time to read about the battle, go back and listen to the bonus episode that I put out on San Jacinto. I'll publish that again on Friday and uh, reflect back on the meaning of a short but decisive world history battle. I want to thank everybody who's supporting the show. If you would like to support the preservation and promotion of Texas history, uh, throw a couple dollars toward Wise About Texas at patreon.com, patreon.com slash wiseabouttexas. Follow the show on Facebook, and we're on Twitter and Instagram at wiseabouttexas. Well, thanks for listening today. Go out and do something for Texas today. And until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.